The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. I'm Dave Cornway, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We are recording this episode on November 8th, 2020, and I'm joined here today by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hey, Adam, how's it going? Good, Dave. How are you uh, faring through uh, Edmonton's first snowfall of the season? Uh, uh, well, I shoveled the snow last night, and I woke up this morning, and you couldn't tell that I shoveled the snow because there was just <laughs> as much snow that fell overnight. But yeah. uh, I had a lot of fun. My son and I went out to uh, go tobogganing with some of his friends uh, this morning in the neighborhood. Nice. There's, a little, there's a little park in our neighborhood with a hill, and uh, it's perfect for uh, for little kids. So they all uh, they were all you know going down the hill and falling off and tumbling into the snow and it was it was great and the weather and this it's sunny outside which is nice because it was yeah. kind of chilly yesterday yeah it's uh it's definitely it looks nicer outside although it's still cool but uh you know i'm i'm i don't think i'm as into the winter as you are and i'm pretty excited about the way it looks out there oh that's great well hey um uh, i'm i'm super excited to go skiing so maybe we'll have to do a dave berta skiing trip if you're up to that. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be fun we could just it could either just be you and me or we could load up a bus full of nerds and uh and well, well we'll have to heed dr hinshaw's recommendations and and uh and True. probably avoid the bus full of nerds but uh, but maybe we could uh, we could do a convoy or something well you know for a brief moment i forgot that uh, we were in the midst of a pandemic because it's been it's also been a really exciting weekend in in non-canadian non-albertan politics as well with with the declaration that uh that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be the next president and vice president in the U.S. Yes, and 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 the bigger the the equally uh, exciting news um, is that Donald Trump is no longer, will no longer be president of the United States. True. Donald Trump Donald Trump has been defeated. Uh, that is something that will that is a, that is a phrase that will never get old. Um, you know the uh, the you know the Americans have a lot of problems that are still uh, still present. And they have a lot of issues to work out, and their they are you know their system is not perfect, um, but uh, not having a total lunatic in the White House is a good mm -hmm. step forward for uh, for that for that country uh, to uh, you know regain its position um, in the international community. Yeah, and you already even saw an outpouring from international leaders, everyone from uh, our own Prime Minister to the PM of the United Kingdom to uh the ukraine uh reaching out and saying you know this is great looking forward to working with you <laughs> uh, i don't know that i don't know that vladimir putin has said anything yet but uh i, I don't know. know maybe he's waiting for all those all those uh those illegal votes illegal, yeah. illegal ballots to be uh, to be thrown out uh, from oh yeah. yeah yeah well i mean it's it's all but over uh of course the the trump campaign is going to uh challenge some of the results in closely contested states they're alleging uh, mail-in mail voter fraud with no evidence. Um, so it's crazy. But I, I did actually want to start with the U.S. election, uh, Dave, because there could be impacts on Alberta. And the, and the first thing that I want to talk about is, is Keystone XL. Now, because I, I recall that Joe Biden made some comments that were he to become president, this project would be canceled. Is that your understanding of it as well? That is... Uh pretty much exactly exactly what he said in terms of what the 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 construction of the Keystone XL pipeline depends on a presidential permit uh which the president of the United States gets to sign and gets to approve an issue uh and the president of the United States gets to 
uh, revoke or withdraw. And we talked a little bit about this on the, this podcast a few months ago when we had Andrew Leach uh, from the University of Alberta come on. And we talked a little bit about uh, the the situation with Keystone XL. And at that point, the you know the election was up in the air. We didn't know who was going to win. Um, but really, like when you when you look at the look at the like the wording of the permit, um, like it basically says that if it's revoked, like like TransCanada, so TC Energy basically has to like not only do they have to stop construction, but they have to like remove all the infrastructure if they're mm. requested to. Which is like so they can't just like stop and like leave the pipe in the ground and ex like say oh well maybe you know maybe uh, Don Jr. will get elected in 2000, uh, 2024 and he'll restart the, the pipeline. Uh, no, that's that like they could actually be asked to like or required to like remove the physical infrastructure from what I understand, which is which is like I'm, I don't know, I don't know how that wouldn't like bankrupt a company because that just sounds like it would be incredibly cost intensive. Um, but the other part of it is that the Alberta government has poured uh, a lot of money into into the, into the Keystone XL pipeline. I think they invested uh, 1.5 billion dollars last year, and then they they were going to implement. Uh, six billion dollars worth of loan guarantees i think it was for next yeah. starting starting next year and from what i understand um looking at the auditor general's report which i think we're going to talk about a bit about in this pod the the loan guarantees start in early january some of them start in early january from what i understand before joe biden becomes president hmm. so um like that's just i mean there were people who were publicly saying like you know that may be good politics in alberta but that's like bad politics and bad bad financial planning on the Alberta government's part to make that kind of investment and obviously the the you know the Jason Kenney and the Alberta government wanted to show that they had confidence in in this pipeline project but uh, I mean if it gets rescinded uh, after Joe Biden is sworn in as president on January I think January 20th um, mm -hmm. that's going to be a huge massive hit and a, a, a very embarrassing failure for the Alberta government for J for Jason Kenney's government um, a real I mean, because that, that's that's a, that's an insane amount of money to put towards something that's just gonna gonna fail. Is is there any way that the Alberta government can can get get out of the deal? Oh, I, I yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I obviously there's there's like in terms of the the loan um, guarantees. I mean, I don't know if those haven't been signed off or they haven't been made yet. I, I mean, there's there might be some way. I I'll, I'll have to do look into it a little further, but it just seems like that that is all up in the air at this point. Um, the thing that's notable about Joe Biden's promise to, to stop the Keystone XL pipeline is that he didn't really give a lot. To, Joe Biden wasn't the progressive candidate in the Democratic uh, nomination. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, uh, Bernie Sanders. He wasn't Elizabeth Warren. He wasn't Kamala Harris. Um, but so he didn't give a lot. He didn't give a ton to the kind of progressive wing of the Democratic Party. He didn't adopt Medicare for all. For all he he shunned the defund the police uh, movement or the, the 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 push to to for the Democrats to adapt adopt that. Um, but Keystone XL was one of the big public ones that he did give the progressive uh, progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And uh, I just think it's going to be really hard for him to uh, to not follow through on that one, which is uh, not. Uh, not great for the government here in Alberta. And, and I mean, in the government of Canada, which has been advocating for it as well. So I, I don't know what the Alberta government can do to change that. I mean, you know, we've heard the premier talk about, oh, we're going to work with, you know, try to work with them and work with Congress and, and reach out to reach out to the, 
you know, remind the Democrats that some of the big uh, private sector labor unions had endorsed the Keystone XL pipeline because that's job. Those are jobs in some of those Central uh, American states. Um, but uh, I, I just, yeah, I, it, it's going to be it's going to be a real hard one, and, and it'll be it'll be very interesting to see what the what the reaction is here in Alberta to something that many people had predicted for basically the past year that might happen. And it's also going to have an impact uh, relatedly on the conversation around climate change uh, across the world, because, you know, the United States really turned its back on uh, on that particular topic. On November 4th, they ended their uh, participation in the Paris Accord, uh, which Joe Biden has said, uh, or I've read actually, will be the United States will be back in there after January 20th by virtue of an executive order. Mm-hmm. Um, what is what is American climate policy do to Alberta's economic fortunes in your mind? Well, I think there's, I mean, there's recognition uh, and, and I mean, I think there's general recognition, um, even though the kind of the political rhetoric there's a lot of political rhetoric and a lot of political capital that gets put in this province into kind of beating our chests about oil and gas and talking about the, you know, the grand conspiracy um, against, uh, against Alberta's energy sector. But I think there's a recognition uh, pretty much in the, in the general population that something is changing. Um, I'll refer, I'll, I'll post a link in the show notes to, for folks to read, but uh, Dr. Jared Wesley from the university of Alberta was interviewed on CBC this week and He's involved in the Common Grounds project, and they, so they've been doing going out and doing focus groups and doing research and and uh, and public opinion research into what Albertans Albertans' attitudes towards some some you know grand more grand narratives like transition like uh, transition energy transition and Alberta's place in Canada. Uh, and it's, there's a, there was a really interesting article in CBC. But one one of the things that he, he said in the interview was that. Um, you know, Albertans wouldn't call it. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but they, you know they wouldn't call it peak oil or you know but but there's a recognition they may call it um you know uh, global um global uh influences or global changes or environmentalists but but there is a recognition that something is changing and it's not necessarily negative but it's a it's it's apparent that it's going to change our way of life and it's going to impact this province but it's not no one i mean no one really knows if that's a negative thing at this part now there are political interests that are trying to ramp up uh, ramp people's emotions up and ramp people, and you know, there's they're doing that for political reasons. Whether it's trying to position Alberta against Ottawa, whether it's a conservative liberal thing or a West to Central Canada thing, or or just trying to uh, deflect attention to other stuff that's happening in this province. But but um, the world, I mean, it's it's clear that the the world is changing, and some of our larger energy companies, oil and gas companies in this province, recognize that. Um, but I think at this point, the government still sees, the, you know, the United Conservative Party still sees that there's a lot of political capital in, um, in beating, beating your chest around oil and gas. And that's where we see stuff like the Canadian Energy Center, the war room. We see this kind of, um, this hilariously, uh, horrible public inquiry into, uh, into anti-Alberta energy campaigns, a public inquiry, I may add, that is, that has taken place completely in secret, completely in private. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, a great, but, great label for it. Right. Public yeah. That, that has again been delayed until, until next January because, um, uh, I, because I mean, obviously the conspiracy is deeper than they, they thought <laughs> and they need more time to research it. 
um, but it is, it is, it is a, uh, I mean, it's part of this fight back strategy that Jason Kenney announced back in, I think it's 2018 to the Calgary Chamber of Commerce. And, and those were kind of the two key, two of the key pieces um, that probably sounded great on the campaign trail and probably sounded great when you were speaking in front of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce at a, at a luncheon in downtown. Uh, but when it's actually, you know, when it actually comes to implementing them, um, you know, you're, you're really trying to buck a global trend at that point. Yeah. Or stick your head in the sand. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, who knows, who knows how much, you know, I have to admit personally, I have a theory that the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will have an uplifting effect on the global mood, at least in the short term. Um, but who knows what the impact of their their policies will be on our politics here in Canada and Alberta. The, the sort of last thing that I just wanted to end with on the U.S. election was uh, this announcement uh, from the Biden, the, the pending Biden administration, the president, President-elect Joe Biden uh, said that he's going to appoint a coronavirus task force on Monday, tomorrow, mm-hmm. at the time of this recording, a 12-member task force to deal with rising cases. And, and, you know, just so you know, yesterday there were 126,000, over 126,000 new cases in the United States, which represents a 57% increase compared to 14 days ago. And they've had yesterday just over a thousand new deaths, a 12% increase over two weeks ago. What do you think I can see you sh- shaking your head. So I know I know you have deep feelings about this, Dave. But what do you think President-elect Biden's task force m- might? What effect that might have on the way the rest of the Western world is dealing with COVID nineteen, if any? Well, I mean, first of all, it sends a message that the the president of the United States, or the incoming president of the United States, takes the situation seriously and will, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I can't imagine I can't imagine a world where we're going to see. Uh, President Joe Biden publicly mocking and attacking his, you know, his top doctors, top, his top uh, uh, top physicians and top top uh, top scientists. Um, like num- so, number one, the tone change is going to is going to be huge. Um, you know, the white the, the person in the White House will understand that this is serious. That there are a lot of, especially in the United States. Um, you know, I mean, we're in Alberta. We're kind of reeling at having 219 new cases yesterday. Um, which is which is a lot, which is, which is a record high, and is something that that's that's very serious and very concerning. Um, I, I think but, you mean but, it was eight hundred or six hundred and nineteen, right? You said 200. no, no, it was nine hundred and nineteen in in Alberta. Yeah, new cases. Um, but uh, but in the United States, it just seems like it's totally out of control. There's they they clearly some states have taken it seriously, some states haven't. And I mean, I guess I, I you know I, I I'm not too familiar with the kind of patchwork of of how healthcare and public health works in the United States. Um, I mean, I, I don't expect that Joe Biden being elected will make governors who weren't taking this seriously all of a sudden take it seriously. But um, uh, I mean, I think it sends a message. It'll send a message from the top. And I'm sure that there are executive powers that the government of, you know, the federal government of the United States has to to enforce public health measures uh, that simply weren't being enforced by the uh, by the outgoing administration down there. Yeah. Well, let's turn our attention then to our own provincial government's response to the huge uptick in COVID cases we're having here in Alberta. Um, we're at over uh, 5%. I'm going to get this this wrong. It's Is it an infection rate or 
we we've exceeded an amount of infections per person or per capita that is really alarming. Like it may start overwhelming healthcare facilities if it hasn't already. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was gonna say, and 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 the increased rate is is what's is is obviously what's what's troubling. Obviously, because there's there's more people being infected and it's spreading, and we we, we don't seem to be able to figure out how to stop that. But also, I mean, all the time, remember, if you, if you go back a few months back to the spring, I mean, all the talk about flattening the curve was, you know, we don't know how to stop this virus yet, but if we can implement public health measures that at least can stop the spread and st uh, slow down the spread and slow down the infection rates, then we won't have to worry. We wouldn't have to worry about um, the some of the things that had happened at the time, as you remember, in New York City and Italy, where hospitals were being overwhelmed and healthcare workers were being infected on in, in huge rates and uh you know people were having to make horrible decisions about you know who would be able to live and who'd be able to die simply because their healthcare system was overwhelmed and they didn't have the capacity the physical capacity actual medical capacity to 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 save people um the whole idea about flattening the curve i mean the big part of it was that you know, th this virus is going to be around until we find a, a cure, a vaccine. But if we can flatten the curve and, and slow down the, the rates of infection and the rates of, 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 of spread, then at least the healthcare system won't be overwhelmed and we can manage it. Um, but that seems to, at least in Alberta, I mean, well, actually, well, across the country, um, that seemed to work over the spring. And then over the summer, you know, people were outside, people were, you know, it was, it was easy, you know, maybe a lot easier to keep to yourself. It was still, it was still, or at least keep to smaller groups. It was still fresh in people's mind. There was still a lot of concern, but but now seven or eight months later, um, winter is coming. Winter, well, winter is here. We're in Edmonton. There's about you know a foot of snow outside. Um, people are moving more indoors. Um, people are, you know, understandably probably starting to get a little tired of some of these restrictions. You know, we want to see our friends. We want to see our family. Um, but now it's starting to spread again, and you know, we've seen uh, rates go up. We've seen in, um, outbreaks in hospitals and uh, and long-term care centers uh, shoot up, rocket up over the past few weeks. Uh, so it is very troubling. Now, I, I wrote a piece last week about Ken J Premier Jason Kenney, about how in his language around the, the COVID-19 pandemic has changed and his positioning around it has changed. In the spring, he was very much trying to position himself as the commander-in-chief, the leader against Alberta's fight against COVID-19. He, he talked about how this was this was like our Battle of Britain. He was quoting Churchill. He was quoting Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, you know, there was a real, like, um, purpose, like, there was a real intentional, um, uh, intentional messaging around, around Alberta's fight against COVID. And then at some point in the spring, or maybe even in the summer, um, he stopped that, and it was, if the focus was return, return, very much returned on uh, on the economic relaunch and mm -hmm. relaunching the economy. And at that point, you know, I mean, there was there was kind of a false sense of security because the the infection, new daily infection rates were going down to you know being reported at in the teens, being reported into single digits. I think at one point, and it looked like okay, well, this is you know, this is we're doing really well, and I think a lot of Albertans were doing really well in a lot of ways it seemed like Alberta was the leader on that. We were the first province to launch an app. I mean, a tra tracing app, I mean, that app didn't really end up working very well. Uh, but, you know, we, we seem to be on the on the, on the the forefront of, of, of the fight against 
COVID in, in a lot of ways. And it, at, the, at that point, it seemed like the government was taking it really seriously. And they were listening to the, the public health experts like Dr. Dina Hinshaw and, and, uh, and other public health experts. But then they shifted towards the economy. And then it was kind of this like point where it was almost like they didn't want to play, didn't really want to talk about COVID. Um, mm -hmm. And then the second wave hit. And then we get a weird situation on Friday where Jason Kenney, Premier Jason Kenney shows up to, or he holds a joint press conference with Dr. Dina Hinshaw, the chief medical officer of health. Now in the spring, Premier Kenney was basically like, it was like every second or third press conference, daily press conference that Dina Hinshaw would hold, he would be there, him or Tyler Shandro, the health minister or some other cabinet minister talking about government initiative to, to fight COVID. But it's been months, I think, since any of them had, have, at least the premier has been in a press conference with her. And it was very, the messaging was very strange and it was very confusing. It was, um, I mean, he, first he, of all, he referred to it as a flu. Yeah. And he's, he's done that a number of times over the, over the course of the pandemic and, and COVID isn't, isn't a flu. It's a, like, it's, it, this is something it's, it's different. I mean, someone I know who had COVID described it as it's the worst flu you've ever had plus pneumonia. So, you know, in terms of, in terms of how they felt. So like, this is, this is like serious stuff. And that's, I mean, and different people obviously have different, you know, not everybody who, who gets infected is going to be on a ventilator in, in the, in the ICU. But, but I mean, this is, that doesn't mean you should downplay it. This is a very serious, it's, it is a very serious virus. Um, but it, Kenny's messaging was very strange because he seemed to talk for about 10 or 15 minutes about how serious it was. Um, and then he like, almost immediately shifted into kind of downplaying how serious mm -hmm. it was because, you know, he, he said, uh, you know, I mean, he shifted in this mode where it's like, oh, only 300 and some people have died and out of 16,000 people who died in 20, 2020. And it was very much like, I mean, it was almost like he became a robot. It was like there was absolutely no empathy or no emotion. It wasn't like, you know, these 300 people didn't need to die. I mean, it's very, it's yeah. very sad that they did. I mean, and, and you can recognize that, that Albertans every day will die of other different ailments or other different different reasons and accidents or whatever. And that's like that's that's the reality. But like, you know, there was no there's no sense of of empathy or or you know emotion about the the, the loss that the families of these people have gone through. Do do you think and I know this is pure speculation, but they, you know, they were elected on on the promise of jobs economy pipelines. I wonder if the calculus in the premier's office is, well, if we do another, some iteration of a lockdown, we're, we're harming the economy and we're messing up our own political fortunes. I mean, his, uh, his approval numbers are not great. I, I, I think that's actually, that that's exactly it. I think these guys just can't pivot is they were uh, elected in 2019 on, as you said, I mean, it was basically their, their platform. They, they released a detailed platform, but it boiled down. It was their main points were jobs, economy pipelines. You heard that all the time. Um, and that resonated with a lot of Albertans and they're now, you know, their, their agenda has been derailed by six months. Um, and they're coming back full stream time, trying to implement it, but they're trying to implement an agenda that, that, you know, may have made sense to a lot of Albertans in pre pandemic, pre COVID days, but, but now, like it, it, we're we're operating in a different in a different reality. I mean, you know, you, you walk down the street a year ago, people would have, would have been you know talking about because it was in the news all the time. Would have been talking about the deficit. Would have been talking about the debt. I mean, if you walk down the street now, I mean, are, you know, is anybody is anybody talking about the deficit or 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 the or the debt in the way that they were a year ago? I no mean, way. there are bigger fish to fry here. There's there's bigger issues facing Albertans and. 
and they just don't seem to be able to to pivot. So I think what we're going to see is we're going to see uh, an even more intense ramped up version of what the UCP was going to implement uh, eight months ago because they were because the pandemic delayed it and because they're you know I mean they're they're reaching they're almost at their their second the, the halfway through their their ter first term in government. Um, mm -hmm. You know the two-year mark, and I mean every government operates on you know a, a some similar form of of a frame a time frame in in, in a four-year term of you know doing your most controversial, hardest things in the first two hardest policy changes in the first two years, and then you spend the next you know then you then you ramp up things getting closer to the election, and then you hit the red zone, and you're in re-election mode, and and the United Conservative Party is getting dangerously close to that point because they they have been delayed and they don't seem to be able to. To I mean, pivot is the word. It's the word that, that that comes to mind. Is is there's no pivot there. They're just uh, they're they're trying to implement a uh, pre pre pandemic agenda. Do you, do you think? Well, so I, I want to introduce a couple of view uh, listener questions because mm -hmm. we we've got a few that are related to this. So I Jason Carbs Brooks from Instagram asks a really good question, which is what would Jason Kenny need to do to raise his approval rating? He seems to think. It's doggedly pursuing their agenda in an entirely new context. What do you think would actually make Jason Kenney's approvals go up? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, recognizing that the that we're living in a different world than we were in 2019, and recognizing that you know big parts of the policy agenda from that that the UCP was elected on just don't really make sense now. Um, I mean, laying off. Announcing that you know unilaterally announcing that you're going to lay off more than eleven thousand healthcare workers in the middle of a global pandemic um, is just, I mean, tone not not only not only is it tone deaf, it's just uh, it's bad for Alberta. Mm -hmm. um, you know, major overhauls to the healthcare system in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, I think uh, since they got elected, I mean, there's this real siege mentality and it's the it's partially it's the it's the politics of grievance and partially it's it's i mean it's this whole idea that every anyone who opposes the government is framed as an enemy um or anyone who criticizes the government is 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 framed as an enemy um i mean you saw this um during when Pub or when schools were reopened and kids were being sent back to schools, there were a lot of parents who had concerns about class sizes and a lot of parents who were concerned about the protocols that would be implemented, whether kids would be safe. Um, you know, thank goodness there have, I mean, there doesn't, there have been outbreaks at schools. It doesn't seem like, I mean, who knows, who knows? I can't, I mean, I can't implement, I can't talk on the, on the, on the effect of it. Um, but it doesn't seem like it's, it's, it's been a, a, a humongous disaster at this point, but um the people who raise those concerns and question MLAs or question the minister, Keshkor, Minister Adrian, Adrian Lagrange, or question the premier, they were uh, they were dismissed as as NDP special interest groups or you know NDP hacks, and it's just like you know so when regular Albertans speak out or question their government, they're basically dismissed, and and so I think that's probably you know that kind of language could probably start, um, you know, early in the pandemic. Premier Kenny talked a lot about uniting, you know, Alberta uniting and fighting this together. Um, you know, this is kind of the Churchillian rhetoric, um, you know, or was was the, the the metaphor used? Albertans are buffalo. You know, we 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 herd and, and stampede into the lightning storm together or something. But you know, at the same time, uh, you know, he, he's he, you know his his political apparatus is turning on the herd at the same time. So I mean, <laughs> quitting that kind of divisive rhetoric 
is probably way to start. And as I said before, showing more empathy. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, he does turn into this kind of like free market robot uh, when, you know, when he's asked these kind of tough questions. And I think showing some empathy and, you know, there are a lot of people who are confused and scared and not necessarily just about COVID, but about the economy and about jobs and about whether their kids are going to be safe or whether their their mom or their grandma or grandpa is going to be safe in, in the you know lo local long-term care center. Like, and there's these are like legitimate questions. And like, it just seems that like emotion and empathy is not his strong point. And maybe that's just not who he is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he seems like a, you know, he's a very extremely political person and politics is his like life his career and his hobby. And I mean, I don't know much about his like, personal life and like, not that I need to know much about his personal life, but like that might help in terms of showing that he's a real human being. A, a whole person. <laughs> I mean, maybe, or maybe it won't, maybe it wouldn't, but, but I think showing some, showing a little more empathy and not, not, uh, not just being this robotic, not, not having like these robotic responses is probably, would probably be the way to start. Not like I'm one to be, be giving Jason Kenny. <laughs> advice but yeah whatever robo it's, it's frustrating because as an albertan i love this province and the people here are great but we are lacking in leadership and i don't necessarily think that is a that is a ucp wide problem i don't necessarily think that is a problem with the ucp caucus i think that is a problem with the leadership that yeah. is in there right now because i know i know there are good people in the united conservative party there are good people in the mlas in the ucp caucus uh, but I do not necessarily see that reflected in the leadership. Yeah, and I think well, I, I don't think I'm the only one who sees it that way. Definitely not. I mean, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of this part of the conversation that uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, you had Dr. Dina Hinshaw out in front most of the time. I I would argue, compared to Jason Kenney, she's a, a far more empathetic person. So I don't know why he's not putting her front and center. There is a question from. A listener about Dr. Hinshaw from Kelly Joe Aldworth. Um, Kelly Joe wants to know if Dr. Hinshaw has autonomy. Well, not not in the way that an an actual independent officer of the legislature, for example, would have autonomy. So, Dr. Hinshaw's position, Chief Medical Officer of Alberta, it's not like the Auditor General or the Ethics Commissioner or the Chief Electoral Officer. They did. They're not armed. She's not in an arms like position. I mean, obviously, she has the ability to give government advice, um, and you know, she's a she's a public health professional, um, but she's also a public servant. She's an employee of the government, and I believe she reports the reporting line is she reports to the deputy minister of health. Um, so basically, the top public servant in the health ministry who then reports to the the minister of health, Tyler Shandro. So she's not she's not in a position where she can like independently make um, you know issue issue uh, you know orders that would be you know, would be seen as politically divisive. There's there, there's there been a lot of questions about, you know, well, why hasn't she done this? And why hasn't she done that? Well, basically because she's, she, I don't necessarily think she has, I mean, she doesn't have the political power, the authority to actually make those types of decisions on her own. That, you know, there's very much, there's, it's very much a, a position where she's, um, she's a, you know, she's a public servant and the, and responsible to her, uh, her political masters. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say political, but to her, to her government bosses, basically. Yeah, fair enough. Now, you mentioned um, a few moments ago uh, the plan to cut uh, around eleven thousand uh, frontline worker frontline worker jobs from the healthcare system, uh, and there was a, a wildcat strike related to us. T maybe tell the listeners a little bit about like that eleven thousand number. Like, where does that come from? Does that actually save the province money? And what the response from healthcare workers has been? 
Uh, well, obviously, I mean, the, the healthcare workers who are impacted uh, on this are, are not happy because they, they took the very serious step of walking, out, walking off the job a couple Mondays ago and having a wildcat strike. Wildcat strike. These are our employees um, represented by the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees, AUPE. Uh, they, in terms of the 11,000, they are, uh, in a lot of cases, they are laundry workers. They're cleaning, so environmental control, um, uh, infection um, uh, people who clean the hospitals, um, uh, uh, people who take care of laundry, food service workers, uh, lab uh, people who work in labs. Um, these are people who, it seems, the government has gone out of the way. So Tyler Shandro has gone out of the way to basically uh, downplay their role in the healthcare system, as if you know the people who clean hospitals aren't on the front lines of healthcare during a global pandemic. Um, you know, the, these types of health support workers are critical. Uh, and they're not necessarily the highest paid, or they're absolutely not the highest paid people in the healthcare system either. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not important. And I think that there's a reason why the government announced these that these types of jobs and these types of people would lose their jobs and that these types of jobs would be contracted out is because this, you know, these aren't, for in a lot of cases, these aren't people who belong to a professional association or have the kind of they, they don't have the, they fall into the kind of like generic person who works at a hospital category in terms of the general the view of the general public, right? It's not like a nurse or a doctor, people who, you know, people who automatically have, you know, the general public has a lot of respect for nurses and a lot of respect for doctors, but they don't necessarily, when they go to a hospital, they don't necessarily uh, recognize all the people who are critical to making a hospital work and making the healthcare system work. And these people are critical. It's part of, you know, healthcare is, healthcare, healthcare, healthcare is, t is a team, uh, uh, it's a team job, a team sport. Uh, if you take one away, then, then that just means that there's some, there's work that other people have to do uh, to, to, to make up for it. And if you're going to start contracting out these jobs, um, I mean, you're taking away, you're absolutely going to have a position, have a situation where these people who, in a in 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 a large part, in some in some cases, especially in terms of laundry services, are from are working in rural Alberta communities and smaller cities and smaller communities because a lot of the laundry services in Edmonton and Calgary are already contracted out. So you're taking people out of positions where they're paid, you know, uh, fair wages or paid you know paid decently, um, uh, and have benefits and have in a lot of cases or hopefully would have a pension. Um, and you're you're putting them in a position where they have to would have to reapply for jobs in the private sector where they absolutely would not have a pension where they're probably going to be paid uh, less and they're probably not at least initially not probably not going to be unionized or not going to have that kind of support in terms of of being able to stand up for workplace health 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 and safety issues and not going to be having the same types of benefits. So you're basically saying you know you're demeaning these kind of these eleven thousand workers who are are you know a big part of the healthcare system and saying that well you know what we're gonna say we're going to save money by contracting it out and you can be put in a in a you know in a worse worse financial and worse employment situation and and as things always go with government they're not going to they're they're not going to it's not going to be cheaper to contract it out someone mm -hmm. else is going to make a profit obviously uh, but it's probably going to cost the government just as much or more in order in order to contract this out just like is it is all the time there's this kind of false uh, belief that the private sector can always do things more efficiently. And that's just, that's, you know, some things the public side of the private sector can do more efficiently, but that's not the case always. And yeah. the, the way the government has done this and the probably this, this has, this has to go back to the empathy thing I was talking about before is like there, 
you know, in, this was unilaterally announced. It wasn't like the government tried to be, even tried to build a case for this. It was just like Tyler Shandro came out and they, and they announced that 11,000 people would be laid off. Bam, deal yeah. with it. Yeah. And yeah, it was awful. Yeah. Well, you know, it gives rise to this question from Mountain Ted on Twitter. He asked, uh, with COVID cases on the rise, do you see the Kenny government and Tyler Shandro getting more inclined to actually negotiate with doctors and nurses and some of these frontline workers? I suspect I know what your answer is going to be. I mean, I hope so, but no. I mean, like I said, these guys don't, they can't, they can't pivot. And I mean, one of the key, um, key characteristics of this government is that they never admit they're wrong. They never admit they're wrong or they've made a mistake. So then they never have to apologize. Um, so I, I just, I, I can't see if they've gone attacking healthcare workers through, you know, through this far, through the global pandemic. Um, I just, you know, it, it would be, it would be good for Albertans if they stopped at this point and, you know, actually tried to sit down with, with doctors and nurses and sit down with, um, with health support workers and their unions and actually try to work this out. But it just doesn't seem like that's uh, they, they want to get their agenda moved through before 2023 and their, their window is closing. Yeah. I mean that, that much is clear. I, I just a lack of, I don't know, creative thinking on their part that's causing them to do this sort of thing and a lack of empathy, as you said. The Dave Berta Podcast is brought to you in part by the Edmonton Community Foundation. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group, and once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. You can also check out Vital Signs, an annual checkup conducted by Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. This year's focus is on millennials. You can learn more at ecfoundation.org. That's ecfoundation.org. This episode of the Dave Berta Podcast is also brought to you by Taproot. Edmonton presents Igniting Innovation. It's a new podcast series on the evolution of Edmonton's tech startup scene. Emily Rendell Watson explores how startups and investors are coming together to build what's next. You'll hear the stories of entrepreneurs, new and experienced tech investors, and those who are working to support the sector. Search for Igniting Innovation in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the app of your choice. You can also find it at presents.taprootedmonton.ca. I want to move on to the uh, the AG's report on government spending. We're going to talk about the war room as part of this, but so so actually maybe let's start with the war room. (laughs) (laughs) Canadian Energy Center, as some people might know it as, though I seriously doubt it. uh, They had a mandate to to do what exactly, Dave? Ah, well, to. I mean, I don't have the original mandate in front of me, but it's essentially to debunk myths about and promote Alberta's oil and gas sector. Um, this was part, as I mentioned earlier, earlier in the pod, it was, this is part of their fight back strategy that Kenny announced. It was, they were going to fight back against environmental groups and fight back against, uh, you know, other governments who were, who were anti-Alberta oil. Um, and it's been a, the, the, in the case of the Canadian Energy Center, the war room, it's been a spectacular failure since the thing was formed, <laughs> um, starting with, uh, with, a, with a, a embarrassing and, and, and hilarious 
scandal that that basically defined them in their first week when they plagiarized or were accused of plagiarizing a logo and i believe they denied it and then they changed their logo and then they were accused of plagiarizing that one as well um yeah. so i mean this is not a uh, it this is there's so much about the war room that we could talk about it's a it's a private company essentially that was set up by the government um where its three directors are the minister of energy the now minister of economy and the minister of the environment um it was it's given a 30 million dollar budget per year from the government um through different 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 grant programs um and uh, yet it's it's operates as kind of this it's supposed to operate as this kind of like separate entity but it's it's it is a it is a government funded public relations agency uh that is um, exempt from freedom of information requests so there's no transparency and it's headed by um a former united conservative party election candidate tom olson and staff includes the guy uh, uh, mark milky who or mike milky who wrote the um Longtime kind of Fraser Institute uh, type who wrote the UCP platform in 2019. This is very much a, a you know, this isn't uh, this is a political organization. It, it's and, the and, it's the croniest PR firm ever. It, it really is. Um, you know, I mean, you really have to give them credit for for uh, for being you know for getting to that getting to that position because i think this type this type of cronyism is is uh, this level of cronyism is hard to achieve but they uh, they somehow uh, they somehow managed to achieve it so the the auditor general's report said that they had uh, he criticized them for awarding 1.3 million dollars in sole source contracts without adequate adequate justification or documentary documentation now the the war room re responded. So I think Tom Olson, the, the CEO of the war room responded um, saying that all those, you know, all those, um, all the paperwork had been figured out and they had, they now have the appropriate documentation, but it was very interesting to listen to the, uh, the, the initial reply response from the, the Canadian energy center, which came through their Twitter account, which was a thread that wasn't threaded. Uh, yeah, and, they're not. They're not even. They can't even do basic Twitter correctly. No, no. They're they're really. It's it's just a like a, a dumpster fire, left, right, and center. Um, <laughs> but they called themselves a. They referred to themselves as a startup company, which yeah. I think, which I think is is like, I mean, I'm I haven't you know I, I I'm I haven't started a startup company. I have. I've did, done two. Did you and get I, a thirty million dollar startup um, funds from the Alberta from the government of Alberta annually? Or, I did not. I did not. I wish no. I, I, if I had known that was available to me, I'm sure the one that failed would not have. <laughs> I mean, this, this is not a startup company. Um, and, uh, and their spin just seems, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it seems like it's, it's amateur hour. They're not really, this isn't really a serious operation. I mean, I think one of the, one of the, comments that are one of one of the one of the one of the uh, the, the phrases that they coined or, or terms that they seem to coin in one in a in a op-ed in the national post or the financial post a few months ago was they the they the, they criticized environmental activists as being anti-reality activists which is just like <laughs> this is an i mean this is what I, what I talked about earlier when when you know referring to uh, to dr wesley's research and, and the comments that he made to cbc in terms of albertans you know recognizing that the world is moving on or that things are changing like 
this is uh, an example of not recognizing that the world is changing and yeah. um, you know, fighting back, but fighting back very poorly. I mean, the narrative is just so, I mean, it may appeal, this is the kind of thing that may appeal to a, you know, a clique at the Calgary Chamber of Commerce, but uh, I mean, this is not where the, not, not, not the direction the world is going in. And um, you know, <sighs> Whether the war room will survive or not, I mean, I, you know, this this is a government that doesn't want to admit that it makes mistakes. Um, this war room should be shut down. The Canadian Energy Standard is a in 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 everything else that's happening in this province. Uh, there's absolutely no way that this should be a priority. I mean, when the press secretary for the Minister of Energy is basically acting as the spokesperson for this this uh, this this catastrophe, it's it's very clear that that this is not an independent startup. This is part of government. And there are public professional public servants who could probably do a better job at this than Tom. They, sh they should consider privatizing the war room, maybe. <laughs> um, what else was in the Auditor General's report, Dave? And and you know, saw Premier or former Premier rather, Rachel Notley really run with the ball on this one. Is is the AG's report as scathing as she seems to suggest? Uh, I mean, it, it should be scathing. I mean, you know, we're in this situation where, I mean, everything is so everything is so hyped up. So like the opposition will, you know, the NDP will, they, you know, Rachel Notley made good points, but the NDP will hype this up to the point where um, it just, I mean, opposition parties in this province just, I mean, the UCP was the same. They just can't help themselves. It's, uh, they'll hype it up to the point where people stop paying attention because it's just, it just seems crazy. Um, this should be a bigger issue than it was. I think it says a lot about um, the news that was happening last week and this week that, you know, an, an Auditor General's report that detailed more than seven or $1.7 billion um, in adjustments to the government's budget uh, were filled with account, triggered by accounting errors and inaccurate projections, like $1.7 billion. That's a huge amount of money, but it was all, this was almost a one day story. Yeah, uh, and I mean this is probably good for for the government that this happened, you know, going into the final days of the U.S. presidential election, um, because it uh, it kind of got eclipsed. And who knows? I mean, the legislature is, is out of session this week. Um, next week they return, um, so I'm sure the opposition will be talking a lot about this because I think it is a big deal. Um, I mean, a couple of the things that were included in this is talk the the contract the the crude by rail contracts. There's a whole section about that in. Um, in, in the Auditor General's report uh, in terms of contracts that, I mean, at the time that the Auditor General's report was written, contracts that weren't finished yet. Now, one of the big things that the, the government, um, that the UCB promised in the last election was to cancel the crude by rail contracts that the, um, the ND, excuse me, that the previous NDP government signed. I mean, they basically stood on top of the you know, legislature and held up a big sign that said, you know, we've canceled them and made a big deal of it. Now, the Auditor, Gen Auditor General's report suggests that might not, might not have been the case. I don't know what the situation is. I know, what did that look like? Were there train cars that were just sitting empty? I don't know. Um, the, the, the ongoing issues with the Sturgeon refinery uh, and the cost associated with that. Now, that, that is not something that is this government owns. That's something that straddles like four or five premiers going back to the the Stelmac era in terms of 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 what a um, what a huge cost and and the financial overruns of, of this refinery built out by Redwater have been. And the other one is the other point before we move on is is I want to talk just a little bit about Aish and a little about the 
assured income for severely handicapped and income support programs. And there was a big pushback against changes that the government made last year, earlier this year, or last year about um, about when ACE payments were being paid out. And mm-hmm. I think the change was, if I understand correctly, and these are people who you know who rely on this type of income um, to you know to to pay the bills, to buy themselves food, to buy themselves bus passes, and one of the changes the government made was to move the payments from the end of the month, the last day of the month, to the first day of the month. And what the Auditor General's report said was that basically that was just to basically like try to hide hide money on paper, like hide you know. So so you're creating this kind of big inconvenience for people who need to buy you know, for example, the bus passes who need to buy their bus passes before the end of the month, um, before they get their so they get their check before the end of the month and they can buy their bus passes for the next month. Um, so you've kind of created havoc in the system for all these people who are very vulnerable in order to kind of just like push the money around to make it look like you're saving, you're, you're, you're saving money or you're cutting costs, which is, you know, not, uh, not great. Yeah. Very uncool. Yeah. So <laughs> there, there, there's a lot in this report. Um, and this seems to be kind of the, for a lot of the, for a lot of the points the auditor general made, this was like the first, like use auditor general's report on this government on the yeah. United conservative party government because the ag came out with a report last year that was talking about stuff that like had spilled over into the new government but was very much like a lot of the stuff that the ndp did and right. you know like criticizing a lot of stuff the previous government did but this is like one of like the i mean aside from aside from the sturgeon refinery which is kind of this like albatross that's spanned you know the the what you know two changes in government that we've had in this in this province in the past forty five years, um, but uh, uh, but this was like very much a, a report on the United Conservative Party, and it wasn't. I mean, it's it should get a lot more attention than it than it has. Yeah, I, I did mess up. I, I I referred to the extension of the war room mandate. What I should have said was the in the public inquiry into foreign interference in our oil industry. That did in fact get extended for a second time. That's. Mm-hmm. that's uh, Political appointee Steve Allen is running that, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so, I mean, you mentioned earlier in the show that they're basically there's so much corruption and interference that they need to. Oh, the conspiracy, conspiracy is so deep that they need, they need more yeah. time. So it was due. Correct me if I'm wrong. It was due in July. It got yeah. extended to October, and now it's been extended again to the end of January. Yeah. So. Uh, what do you think, Dave? Like this again? You refer to a government that can't admit it was wrong. Is that what's happening here? Who knows? Who knows? Maybe we'll get a report before the twenty twenty three election. Um, <laughs> you know, this 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 seems like this was a uh, you know this 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 stemmed out of the out of a talking point that worked on the campaign trail. To, you know, ahead of the twenty nineteen election and during the twenty nineteen election, and um, you know they were able to uh, you know appoint someone who. Uh, Commissioner Steve Allen, who was very well known in Calgary, has a lot of Calgary business connections. Um, but it just, this seems like it's been an incredibly embarrassing um, year in terms of trying to figure out what this means. This is a public inquiry that is holding no public hearings. Um, we don't know what exactly they're doing. Uh, the commissioner apparently, according to the website, the inquiry website, apparently took trips to Vancouver or and Haida Gwaii, and I think he said Washington DC and Toronto last year. We have no idea what the commissioner was doing there, or who they, who we talked to. Um, we really don't know anything. I mean, we know that that a you know, huge sum of money was paid to Dentons. Um, I think it was nine hundred thousand dollars in order to do research um, or provide some kind of support. But Jeez. you know, we we basically haven't seen anything. And uh, and again, this is 
it's exempt from FOIP. So there's no freedom of information requests that reporters can make. So, I mean, this is this kind of like ongoing thing that was probably a bad idea to begin with. Um, but, uh, and now they're kind of, they're stuck because they, you know, they've created a public inquiry and they're continuing to having to, continually having to delay its, re delay its release because, um, I mean, I don't know, they're not ready or they don't know what they're doing or they can't find a conspiracy. Like I just, I, I don't really, when I, when this initially was announced, I assumed that it would release a report that would simply confirm its mandate or simply confirm yeah. the political points. And I, I thought that's what this was. This was a process of, um, you know, regardless of what, 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 what the situation actually is or what they discovered, it would be, you know, a report would be released that basically confirmed all the talking points. And I mean, to my surprise that that is not the case um, because they haven't released anything. There was an interim report apparently that was sent to, shared with the um, energy minister early this year, but that hasn't been made public. So, I don't know. Who knows? This is embarrassing. Um, they should just shut it down at this point because it's it's uh, it's it's clearly a giant waste of money. Oh, I, I'd wager that when they do have the results, so-called results of this, they'll make an announcement about them at Four Seasons Total Landscaping in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. <laughs> it's, I, it's a great media venue. <laughs> and, by that, and, and by that point, Rudy Giuliani, we, Rudy Giuliani will probably be looking for work. So yeah, yeah so you've yeah. got a new new potential lawyer and spokesperson. You know, on the question of of this uh, this foreign interference report and the the Auditor General's report, Mountain Ted asks, what are the odds of the energy war room, which we were talking about earlier? surviving until christmas do you do you see a, a near future where the premier shuts it down no i don't and i think that would be a great christmas present for albertans if they shut it down <laughs> um and a great christmas <laughs> but uh but no i don't see i just don't see it um i mean maybe they'll surprise me and they will um but they've they have not um backed down at all on this and i just i just i think the war room will exist until um you know the United Conservative Party is defeated in the 2023 election or oh you heard or, or, or whatever or whatever you heard it here first everybody um, all right <laughs> well before we get on to uh we've got a few more listener questions to round out the show but there was one thing that uh, that we wanted to talk about and that was uh that was uh ML UCP MLA Drew Barnes um so Drew Barnes backed the the NDP put forward a motion uh in last week or the week before mm -hmm. where they wanted, they wanted the premier to, they wanted to have a debate on separation, right? Yeah. I mean, the way, the way it was framed was, was basically a, de, it, the, the motion introduced by uh, Edmonton Ellerslie, NDP, MLA, Rod Loyola, um, was basically like, you know, urged the, the, the legislature and the government to reaffirm our, our commitment to national unity in Canada. It was a I, that wasn't the exact wording, but it was basically, that was the framing. And I mean, this was a, um, this was a motion that was intentionally, um, you know, in, in a normal year, this would be something that every MLA would jump up and say, you know, you know, obviously we love Canada, we're Canadians, we're patriots. Um, but, uh, you know, this Wexit separatist kind of wave that seems to be receding um, has a lot of, uh, you know, UCP MLAs nervous. It's a, and so the NDP and, and, and sympathetic in the UCP caucus. Um, so the, the NDP, this was very clearly used to, uh, as a wedge to make UCP MLAs uncomfortable. It's a totally legitimate question. It's a totally legitimate thing that, that, that MLAs should be able to talk about. And in no there should be no question about that MLAs should support it. Um, but the government 
didn't want to talk about it. So it was introduced by Rod Loyola. There was some, I listened to part of the debate. There was some, uh, you know, nervous uh, MLAs, UCP MLAs who got up and, and, uh, and talked about how, you know, we shouldn't be debating this because our constituents have different opinions and, and, uh, and stuff. And, um, and then it was shut down by basically shut down from what I understand, shut down by the government. Um, the speaker has, uh, or it was a motion to, to, uh, you know, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed now. Cause I don't, I don't remember which standing order was used. Um, but, uh, it was basically the ad, the government asked to shut it down. The speaker said, Nathan Cooper said that he would, um, have to report back to the legislature in order to rule on it, in order to, to rule on the, the arguments in for and, and against, but, there was an MLA, a UCP MLA, who spoke up in favor and defense of uh, of NDP MLA Rod Loyola's motion, and that was Cypress Medicine Hat MLA Drew Barnes. Strange uh, bedfellows, eh, Dave? Oh yeah, yeah. And and Drew Barnes is a uh, is a uh, a very he's an odd character, and I say this. Um, I know a lot of people don't like him. Um, I've always gotten along really well with Drew. He's always treated always treated me nicely. Um, responded to comments, said hi to me when I'm at the ledge. Um, aside from the, the politics of it, um, but this is very much a uh, symbolic defiance in uh, in a system that is in which loyalty to party and leader is like key to any kind of advancement. And to put it into the context, so Drew Barnes uh, was first elected as the MLA for Cypress Medicine Hat as a Wild Rose MLA in 2012. He's actually the only one of the original Wild Rose MLAs still left in the legislature. Um, he, didn't wow. cross, he didn't cross the floor. Uh, he ran for re-election as a Wild Rose MLA in 2015 and was re-elected. Um, he was promoted when Jason Kenney became leader of the United Conservative Party. He was promoted and after Derek Fildebrand had been kicked out of the UCP caucus or kicked out or left um, uh, after a number of scandals. He, Drew Barnes became the finance critic, which is like usually one of the most high profile roles. Usually when you're the finance critic in an opposition party, if that party forms government, you're probably gonna be a senior cabinet minister. UCP wins the 2019 election. Drew Barnes gets reelected by a big margin in Cypress Medicine Hat. He does not end up in cabinet. Now there's a lot of rumors and speculation around what happened, um, whether he was offered a role, a, a junior role in cabinet or, or a role that, that was not considered senior enough for someone in his position and from, from the opposition and he declined whether he was not offered a role at all in cabinet. Um, but it seemed like a pretty big deal looking when Jason Kenney announced who the who cabinet was in, in um, whose cabinet would be in 2019. It was seemed like a pretty big deal that, that Drew Barnes wasn't in cabinet. Drew Barnes has always kind of been a bit of a bit of a rogue. And I say rogue in the way it's not that he votes differently than the government. Because um, typically, you know, even MLAs or parliamentarians in Canada who are considered rogues in their own caucus, they usually vote with the government like or their party like 99% of the time. But that yeah. 1% is what makes them different. But what, what makes Drew Barnes notable is his, uh, the amount of public talking he's been doing, the amount of public speaking he's been doing and blog posts and tweets he's been doing in support of separatism, in support of Alberta's separation. And, and, and he plays very coy when you listen to him in interviews. He was on the um, the West of Center podcast that CBC does a few months ago. And um, you could tell when he was being interviewed that, you know, the Kathleen Petty, the host was trying to like 
needle him a bit and get him to like admit that he was a separatist and and drew he kind of barnes kind of like dances around it a bit saying oh well you know i see that there would be benefits to you know being autonomous and i see that you know and it's it's very clear i mean drew barnes is the unofficial leader of the separatist caucus inside the ucp caucus at this point right. he's publicly talking about separatism um he's put out these blog posts about how you know alberta would actually be it would actually be easier to build a pipeline out of alberta if we were an independent country than if we're part of a province of Canada, and if we're a province of Canada, which just seems like bonkers. He was talking about how, I think he posted a blog post about how, <coughs> excuse me, British Columbia would be like East Prussia. Um, if you remember like, you know, post-World War One to World War II Germany. Um, so I guess that would make Alberta Poland. Um, but basically saying that that uh, it's it's funny listening to listening to people who've talked listen to MLAs and 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 advocates for separatism who've, who've who've made these points they tend to refer to like obscure European countries as like examples of how Alberta could do well so like Alberta could be like you know the Italian province of South Tyrol which is what um, uh, what uh, ML UCP MLA Angela Pitt had said um, you know we're in a, we could be like another another one was you know we could be like Hungary or Slovakia um, you know these are not like you know, not no not to not to say anything bad about the people in these countries, but these aren't necessarily countries that like we should aspire to be. Uh, you know, we already are already part of one of the best countries in the world, if not the best country in the world. So yeah. Um. So anyway, going back to Drew Barnes, he spoke up in favor of the of of debating the motion. He used a con he said a comment of of basically said the government should shouldn't uh, expect that the backbenchers are basically sixty four well paid extras. Um. So there's a there's the there's uh, a bit of so there's there's a number of things going. Part of it is the is the is the debate over uh, whether MLA should be able to debate Canadian or support for Canadian unity or support for separatism. Uh, the other is uh, tension between Drew Barnes and Jason Kenney, and the other is tension between the backbenches and the government because this government is doing things that. Uh, is I talk about the cabinet is implementing an agenda that is unpopular with a lot of Albertans. It's been we talked about we talked about the the government implementing a pre-pandemic agenda during a pandemic, uh, and backbench MLAs I'm sure are hearing quite a bit from their constituents about their concerns around education, around healthcare, around what the government is doing. Um, so, but as I said, this is a system where loyalty and standing in line is is your key to any kind of advancement. So there's got there's there is absolutely a lot of tension going on there between the backbench MLAs and the government. And you know whether it spills out and turns into a backbench revolt and is something very dramatic. I mean we can all hope for something really dramatic and exciting. I'm not sure that it'll ever that it will get that far. Um, but there is a lot of frustration. And I think right now Drew Barnes, um, you know he's put, pushing forward his own agenda. But I think he's also um, his he he's in a position where he can speak out a bit about this kind of stuff and yeah. i mean obviously he's not going to be popular in in the premier's office right now i don't know whether he's going to be kicked out of the caucus or whether he's going to be you know be a backbench leader or he's just trying to talk about separatism but uh um you know and i guess we'll see when the legislature when, when the legislature returns now the interesting thing this is the really nerdy thing i wanted to talk about um, the day that Rod Loyola introduced the um, the motion was the 38th anniversary of the 1982 Alberta election. Okay. And, and and bear with me. And this election is notable for a number of reasons because it was the election that marked the uh, basically the end of the Western Canada Concept Party as a political force in Alberta. 
Now, ahead of the 1982 election, in February 1982, uh, Bob Clark, who was the former Social Credit Party leader, uh, resigned his seat in Olds Didsbury, and there was a by-election, and a guy by the name of Gordon Kessler, on uh, an oil well, or what's what's called an oil, I can't remember what the term is. He's basically he basically worked in the oil sector, but he was like a he was an oil scout. That's the term, and it's basically this you know, the position where you'd hire someone to, from what I understand, you'd hire someone to physically go out and spy on other oil wells and other oil operations. Um, and if you go onto YouTube, he actually has a whole video, currently a whole YouTube video about it. He's written a bunch of books and stuff. Uh, and he has a YouTube video talking about being an oil oil, oil, oil scout, oil well scout. Um, uh, but this was the, so this is the anniversary of that election. February 82, Kessler was elected. The election was held in November 82. He lost his seat. The Western Canadian concept, um, earned about 11% of the vote. This was kind of the height of the national energy program fervor in Alberta. Um, they didn't win any seats. They did very well in a number of rural seats, um, but it was very much, uh, 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 the separatist movement was beaten back by, uh, by Premier Peter Lougheed in, in that election. So it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting that that was the same day. And I mean, I don't know if it was planned by Rod Loyola that, 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 uh, that he wanted to, uh, to uh, to debate it on the 30th anniversary of that probably not i'm probably the only person who who, who put two and two together and realized so. that um but also the other interesting thing about the 82 election is that it is the elect first election that resulted in an ndp official opposition in alberta and wow. so the tories won i think there were 79 seats in the legislature and the progressive conservatives won about 75 of them um so it was a massive majority and uh, as the law he'd uh, majorities were uh, there was no other kind of majority, and when when Peter Lougheed was premier, um, so Grant Notley up from Fairview Spirit River, the, the who had been the leader for the previous uh, twelve or fifteen years, was reelected, and Ray Martin was re was elected for the very first time in Edmonton Norwood, wow. and the, the two of them formed the official opposition, and there was some debate around this because the other two opposition MLAs who were elected. Um, uh, Walt Buck and Ray Speaker were former social credit MLAs who had left the social credit party and ran as independents. Now they tried to make the case that they should form the official opposition because they had been MLAs previously and had been part of the official opposition before, but the speaker at the time ruled that, uh, that you know, they were running as independents, therefore they didn't form an opposition. The NDP won 17% of the vote in the, that election. They, uh, and uh, yeah then, uh, you know, there's history. And then wow. they formed official opposition for the next 11 years. And now there was official opposition again. I, I do feel fairly confidently <laughs> that you are the only person who knows <laughs> all of that. You know, I, I could, I could, I, I have a huge, uh, I have a post written, an article written about the 82 election that I've been meaning to publish this week, but I just, I just can't seem to put the final touches on it. So maybe this will be the inspiration to do it. Cause there's a lot more stuff. There was like uh, the reform movement of Alberta that was in there and they, they, they had an MLA and um, yeah, there was all sorts of, all sorts of stuff about, uh, you know, the metric system was a big issue and official bilingualism. It was, uh, you know, a strange, strange time. Dave, if, if at some point in the next five years, you don't write a book on obscure Alberta political history, <laughs> I'll kill you. Cause, uh, cause like you've, I mean, I don't know if some of our listeners may have seen a couple of your nerd night presentations and, Man, you're a font of unusual uh, political Alberta knowledge, and I love it. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Adam. And uh, yeah, one of these days I'll get working on a book. Yeah, after you stop, you know, having kids and stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. 
So that's that's Drew Barnes. And uh, and before we end the show, we do have just a few more listener questions that uh, we wanted to get to. Uh, one of them was from Secular Hellhound on Instagram. <laughs> Killer name. Uh, Secular Hellhound says, I'm having a hard time unpacking Bill 32. Please help. So what is Bill 32, Dave, in, in this oh. What's he talking about? Yeah, so Bill 32 was a bill passed in the last, or not in the last session of legislature, but in the spring session of the legislature. And there's quite a bit to Bill 32, but but the the big part that I that I recall is, and we can tell, maybe I can do some reading and talk about it a little bit more and then expand on it a little bit more in the next episode. Um, but the big part of Bill 32 was targeting um targeting targeting part of this this UCP agenda to target labor unions and to defund labor unions and part of it was and we, we've seen we've seen these kind of tactics down used by Republican governments down in the United States um, it's usually a precursor to trying to implement something like work to or right to work um, which is um, basically a, an, another scheme to defund defund labor unions uh, defund the labor movement um, it basically means and we haven't seen the the regulations that will govern in this yet but they want to, they've created a system where, or will create a system where um, individual union members have to fill out a form or check off a box or something. Again, we don't know what, the, what, what, what it's gonna look like in order to basically give permission for their par a part of their dues, their union dues that they pay to their union for representation and bargaining collective agreements in order for a certain percentage of those, that those dues or a certain portion of those dues to go towards political some kind of political activities now it's we don't really know what that means it wasn't really defined in the act we don't know what that will look like it's the de the act deferred to the regulations so it'll be the cabinet that will come out with that um but essentially what that really is trying to do is trying to stop labor unions from being able to um run adver you know run political campaigns against uh, you know against issues that that are on against governments or on issues that they feel um, they feel that they need to speak up for on behalf of their members. So, you know, we've seen, for example, um, the United Food and Commercial Workers, UFCW 401, earlier this year, they ran a big, they've constantly been running big campaigns in support of grocery workers. So, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I mean, a lot of people recognize that it was kind of generally recognized that these people were, you know, the front, they were frontline heroes. They were going to work and keeping grocery stores open and, you know, making sure this, the food chain in our, in our cities, in our towns and, and communities were, was, was flowing. So we could, uh, you know, we could go safely to, uh, to grocery stores and they were putting themselves at great risk by being out there and being, you know, going to work and having to, you know, be in close proximity to a lot of people from the general public every day. Uh, you know, and they ran a big campaign about, you know, we need to support support grocery workers and, you know, the employers should support grocery workers. So it seems like that's the kind of thing that would be the kind of thing that would be impacted. So the, the question is, is what does political activities define? What, what, do they, what are they actually going to define as political activities? And we all know in this province, um, you know, union donations to political parties are, are already banned. So that's not that's not something that that's going to be impacted by this because that's something that's not already not available but the i think the idea is is they don't want public union public sector unions to support the ndp mm -hmm. um but the the challenge is is there the concern is is that that's also going to impact a lot of um a lot of um 
political activities that are, you know, aren't partisan, that are simply yeah. just unions doing what they're supposed to be doing, and that's sticking up for their members and organizing their members and and trying to get, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it's decent, decent wages or decent working conditions or, you know, better uh, better health and safety protocols. Um, so it, that that's kind of the impact of what 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 it's going to have is is you're going to have workers aren't going to be basically aren't going to be able to speak up for themselves because of this. Hmm. That's I think that's the that's the intent. Who knows? You know, we'll see what it's what it actually looks like when the regulations are are released. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully that answers secular hellhounds question. Uh, yeah, thanks next for the question, question and great handle by the way. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Our next one comes from Caden Blake AB on Instagram. They ask, "What is in store for parties left out of our legislature, like the Alberta Party and the Liberal Party?" I feel like we every couple of shows just we need to put these guys back on our radar. We answer yeah. a question like this, but what do you think? Yeah. Hey, uh, first of all, hi to our friends in the Alberta Party and the Liberal Party. Uh, yeah, we don't get to talk to you, talk about you very much, very often because you're not in the legislature. But um, here we go. Uh, well, the Alberta Party—they um, need a leader. Um, they currently have an interim leader, Jackie Fenske, former Progressive Conservative MLA for Fort Saskatchewan, Vegreville, um, is filling in as interim leader. From what I understand, they were hoping to have pre-pandemic. They were hoping to select a new leader this year uh, or be in a position to have a leadership race. Obviously, that's not happening. Um, yeah, so they they need a leader is kind of one of the first things they need to do, um, and then obviously go from there in terms of defining themselves in terms of you know where do they actually fit. So you haven't really heard a lot from them. Uh, the Liberal Party, uh, David Kahn is still leader of the Liberal Party. He's persistent. He is uh, you know ener you know energetic, still out there. Um, I you know I think that the biggest problem for the Alberta Liberal Party at this point is the federal Liberal Party and Justin Trudeau. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, uh, I mean, I think that, you know, the, 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 I don't see the Alberta Liberal Party doing, going anywhere in this province um, as long as Justin Trudeau is Prime Minister of Canada. I think it's just such a uh, giant anchor around their necks right now, or, you know, lead shoes, concrete shoes or whatever, um, mm -hmm. because there's uh, there, there's that tension. And that the NDP has filled the position of the kind of center, center-left-ish um, opposition party in this province. Um, I mean, people who are voting for the Alberta Liberal Party 10 years ago are probably voting for the NDP now. So, you know, there's there's not much, not much oxygen for them as long as the NDP and uh, Rachel Notley are around. Totally. Yeah. Well, thanks, Caden, for that question. Uh, I assume that's the first part of your name. You can never tell with some of these uh, these Instagram handles. Uh, Fuzz738 on Twitter asks, this is our last question, by the way, and thanks to everyone who sent in questions today. We, we sort of wove them into the show. Uh, Fuzz738 wants to know, given the results of the U.S. election, do you think Jason Kenney might start distancing his overall rhetoric to take on a less Trumpian style? What do you what do you think is going to happen here, Dave? Well, I mean, I, I mean, first of all, I mean, Jason Kenney isn't Donald Trump. I mean, there, there's a lot of rhetoric and there's a lot of like populist rhetoric. I don't even know if I'd call it Donald Trump rhetoric. Um, I think that I mean, at his core, I mean, Donald Trump or um, Jason Kenney is a uh, you know he's a free market policy wonk who's adopted populist language because it works. I mean, I don't think that I mean Jason Kenney isn't a isn't a populist in in the way that someone like Donald Trump or in the way that an actual populist is. He is a you know he comes from the the the, the policy wing of the of the conservative movement. Um, 
Uh, and as long as they think, as long as they believe the kind of populist language that they've been using will continue to work, I think they'll continue to, to continue to use it. I mean, I don't know. It, I don't know what kind of impact it's actually the you know the the defeat of Donald Trump is going to have on on Alberta politics. Uh, I'd say it's like too early to tell. Um, but I think that you know if there is a huge tone shift in the United States, um, I mean that might permeate up here as well. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, I hope so too. And uh, it's, like you said, it's something we're going to just have to wait and see. We're only just, uh, I mean, we got the news, the sort of half official news uh, yesterday. So it's. Well, and, uh, and, yeah. And Donald Trump is still president for the next two months. And yeah. 73 I, days. Yeah. And it seems like he's, at least for the past few days, he's been like trying to stage a, uh, incompetently stage a coup or something. Um, <laughs> though it seems like. Um, cooler heads are you know in in the republican sphere are prevailing i saw a statement from former president george w bush congratulating president-elect joe biden and and we've seen a number of kind of prominent republicans of that kind of stature step out and 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 actually say like you know no no you know joe biden actually won the, actually won this election but you yeah. know we'll, we'll see how it goes over the next over the next few weeks it's you know he can still do a lot of i mean he might just retire to mar-a-lago and golf for the next two months but he also might you know do a lot of damage i mean he's he's golfed twice in as many days uh over the last two days so i mean yeah you know one round of golf a day that's 73 rounds of golf between like now and january 20th pour out his sorrows yeah on the on the back nine is that a golf term a back nine you, you nailed it buddy you yeah. you, could, you could talk sports ball just like uh like a normal person you know i own a pair of golf clubs but i have not golfed in about 10 years so. Well, you know, when COVID's over, we can do the Dave uh, Dave Berta charity golf tournament in support of dark left wing causes. How about uh, that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, we'll uh, we'll give the public uh, public inquiry a heads up about that. <laughs> awesome. We're over here. <laughs> <laughs> Four. Sorry. <laughs> uh, thanks to everybody who's sending questions. Uh, really love it when you guys uh, ask us those, so that we can see if we can stump Dave. That's that is it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to our producer Adam Rosenhart for making this podcast sound so good. The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Send us your feedback on Twitter and Instagram at, at @daveberta or on the Dave Berta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at daveberta.ca. And we would love it if you could leave a review or a rating where you listen to the podcast. It really helps us out. Thanks so much for listening and we'll uh, we'll talk to you next time.